0: Everybody. Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Tim Muirhead, and I will be your host today. Sitting in with me is Teresa Morrow. How are you doing today, Teresa?
1: Doing well, thanks.
0: Tell us about the movie that we're going to be talking about okay. today.
1: Okay. So today, we're going to be talking to two members of the sound crew and uh, the picture editor of the Elton John musical, fantasy, biopic, Rocket Man. It follows Elton John's life from his early childhood through, you know, the heights of his musical success and, and also the roller coaster of his personal life. This is all played out through the lens of his music. So throughout the film, his songs are reinterpreted to tell the story kind of as it jumps back and forth in time and also in and out of reality. I watched a little clip of an interview with the director of the film, Dexter Fletcher, uh, where he has a very apt and pithy uh, description of the film. And he says, well, it's a musical, but it's weird. (laughs) And I thought that was a perfect description.
0: (laughs) So, we're lucky enough to have with us today Andy Patterson, who's the music editor on Rocket Man. He's also tackled the music cut on Britain's Got Talent, X Factor, and The Crown. Thanks for joining us today, Andy. Do you hear Elton John constantly in your thoughts after working on Rocket Man?
2: Interestingly, I now hear our versions of the songs rather than the originals.
0: Yeah, that makes perfect sense.
2: Exactly, that our versions of things like Goodbye, Elibrick Road have managed to um, ingrain themselves um, in my psyche, but I will admit to have been a little bit of an Elton John fan before we started. So I, I was um,
0: familiar with his work anyway. For sure. Uh, we also have Danny Sheehan. Danny is a supervising sound editor and his work on both Kingsman films and both Kick-Ass films, which are both action films, but almost couldn't be further apart from each other other than the same genre, I guess. Danny's first credit listed on IMDb as a supervising sound editor was on Lock, Stock and Two Smoking and Barrels. That's a hell of a way to start your career. That must have been a super fun one to work on, Danny.
3: Yeah, it's pretty cool actually. We, uh, we started off, me and Matt sort of worked together, the uh, co-supervisor. We started off um, in a facility called Magmasters and Guy Ritchie just rocked up with a low-budget film and we were kind of thrown on it really, um, but did a lot, hell of a lot of work on it for not much time and really enjoyed it and got a good relationship with both uh, Matthew Vaughan and Guy Ritchie from that, that one particular film.
0: Well, you took your first opportunity there and hit it right out of the park. That was awesome. Everybody loves that movie. It's fantastic. And finally joining us today is Chris Dickens, who is a picture editor on Rocket Man and has an amazing CV, including some of my favorites, Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, Slumdog Millionaire, uh, Submarine, which is a, at least on this side of the ocean, a not as much seen film, but I love that movie, Les Miserables, Mary Queen of Scots. Uh, Chris, is it true that you actually worked as a sound editor earlier in your career? yeah
4: well very early when i when I left film school that's what I wanted to be what i what I wanted to do. I very quickly realized that the editors and directors sort of bossed you around and used to chuck out all the sound effects that I'd spent weeks weeks sort of um you know preparing so I thought well, the best thing is actually to be an editor and chuck out somebody else's.
1: <laughs> yeah, literally call the shots.
4: <laughs> but no, not quite. That's a bit negative. But no, that that was a re- I did I did that for a little bit, but it, it wasn't really for me. Actually, I thought film editing would be some something a little bit more interesting for me.
0: But it proves that you've got uh, an ear for sound because your uh, resume has a lot of sound-based pictures on it. Les Misérables, obviously Rocket Man, a Burbian Sound Studio.
4: Yeah, I mean I love it. I mean I've always been interested in it, and it was the thing that first got me into into film. Faking in many ways, you know, was the sound and stuff like that. So I'm I'm always looking for ways of you know doing something creative and interesting on what, whatever it is that you know I'm working on.
0: I'll start working on Rocket Man. I imagine there was a fair bit of pre production work on this, especially for you and the music editing, Andy. How early did you get in on it?
2: If we consider um, the point of release being sort of May 2019, I started back in June 2018 um, ahead of the shoot working on uh, some of the sessions, the pre record sessions, and some of the pre viz. Basically, uh, the first thing I did too was, was I went through the script and We had Giles Martin as music producer and I knew he had a good handle on the songs, the main songs that we had. But in addition to that, there were a lot of little incidental bits of music. So all these bits of additional music needed to be prepared in advance so we could um, shoot to have them play back on set and somebody um, play to them. So I was um, involved in choosing a few of those and helping to prep them. As for the work on set itself, I was um, the playback engineer um, as well as the music editor on set. So um, I, I, every morning um, I turned up at the location, managed to get my flight case off the truck and set it up, find power, um, find somewhere to put my speakers that somebody wouldn't unplug them, which happened more than once, and then sit and be shouted at f- um, uh, by the um, first assistant director We worked up a system whereby the the first AD and the script supervisors had the lyric sheets for the songs with bar numbers um, attached to them, which corresponded to my bar numbers in Pro Tools. So he could call me on the radio and say, can we play back from bar 15? Which then the script supervisor would note down that take number and the fact it was from bar 15, and then deliver lyric sheets to uh, the editorial department later on.
4: It's pretty unusual for you to be on the film that early, isn't it? for a music editor to be, you, were on, you know, you were on the same floor as us, same, you know, next door to the, uh, you know, the picture editing department. I found it
2: quite useful. Every time we needed help from you, you were close by. Exactly, yeah, and to sort of aid that transition, I was delivering, every time we did a playback on set, I would deliver a, a, a WAV file with um, a time timecode start time in the, in the file name, and that time code corresponded to some digi slates that we used on set the timecode on which was generated by my Pro Tools rig as well, uh, which we did via a wireless link. So I press play on Pro Tools, the timecode would start running um, on the digi slates. And when we got to the end of the take, they put an end board on with the digi slate, which meant that Chris and the rest of the editorial team could um, line up exactly, in theory, my uh, the files I'd sent over with that day's action.
1: And when you're playing back on set, did you find that the tracks as you had them set? Was what you ended up with, or were you doing any editing on the fly? There
2: were some where we added, where we took bars out. Uh, Saturday nights are right for fighting. Uh, I got there, and Giles and his team had given me this session with some stems in, which had this very free flowing, jazzy style solo piano at the start and had like a very slow vocal over the top. And then Dexter said, No, 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 that's not what I want. It's got to be, it's got to slam in straight hard. We've got to have the piano going straight away at 100 miles an hour. And the, the boy's got to be singing along. At which point I realised that wasn't quite what we had in the stems. I managed to chop a bit out from further in the track and move that back for the piano. I managed to find the glissando online somewhere on YouTube because he wanted a massive gliss at the top. And then I sat and sang into a microphone the first verse of Saturday Night's Alright for Fighting. So everybody listened to me singing a very... Because it was supposed to be a um, young Reggie again singing it. So it was me singing a falsetto version of Saturday Night's Alright for Fighting. That progressed on the previs and then when we got to the actual shoot they decided the, the dance section was a bit long so we took eight bars out of that. Mainly the structure stayed the same for the shoot, it was just when they got to Chris's hands.
4: Yeah, we tended to, like when you shot it, we often found that there wasn't enough space to put some of the, you know, maybe add a few bars of music and things like that just to just to fit it all in. So that was, you know, that early on that was what the majority of the work that we did with the music and obviously later on it got very complex.
1: The one thing about the film, in credit to all of your collaborating, is that there's not a lot of standing around and singing. Like there really is very few moments where it's just straight performance. It's constant storytelling, like each, and I think that's part of, The fact that the film slips in and out of reality is it's you're able to just pack so much story and and like little moments into like every line of each song. So it's constantly the story is constantly being told as they're singing the songs. It's really so much happening.
4: Yeah, I mean, that was what I loved about the script and about this particular way of doing a musical. Is It is a classic musical in many ways, but it actually, as Dexter said, is a little weird. But the songs do illustrate his life and therefore we had to take a lot of artistic license with the songs, both when they're used I, i.e. they're not used at that you know they weren't always written at that particular time of his life you know they maybe we took songs from later in elton's career and used them when he was younger for instance um i want love which is a song he wrote they wrote much later but basically the that meant that we had a lot of license like with the with the soundtrack as well with the music to actually change it and evolve it during during the edit um You know, and that that was a very interesting thing and and kind of different thing about the process on this, is that as the edit evolved, so did the music. It it never stayed the same as the the music that you played on set and all that, you know, that kind of thing.
0: So you mentioned earlier, Chris, that Andy was in the room next door while you were cutting the picture. How early in the process did uh, Danny get involved?
4: Not that early, but you got involved fairly much earlier than I would normally expect, like during the director's cut. The whole sort of feel of the film was very dependent on the the soundtrack. That is, you know, not just the score and the music that we were using, but also the way that we used sound on the film. So we tried to get you involved as soon as possible, Danny.
3: Once we sort of read the script, we had a meeting with Dexter probably a little bit before everything started. We'd worked with Dexter on Eddie the Eagle just before, so we had a bit of a working relationship with him anyway. But after speaking to him, his main concern for us was the transitions from the kind of live on set singing across to what Giles was good, you know, sort of working on in his kind of pre and through and post kind of recording. So coming away from that meeting, one of the conversations I wanted to have early was because we were going to be crossing all departments on this. Like I think each person's discipline was all combined throughout the whole whole process, including Chris's much later on even just sliding shots for sync for us, you know. So even on that starting point, it was it was really important to kind of set up a few conversations. So for me, I got involved with Andy quite early and John Hayes, who's like the sound recordist that also works on the Kingsman franchises. We had a discussion about how we were going to try to attack those kind of live songs to try to get as best out of it as we could. I know some of them were done to playback Andy, but... For the ones where he was singing live it was kind of just trying to get complete control of the set get things recorded in a certain way when they'd done um, their kind of pre pre pre-records with Giles it was kind of getting my technique set up so that we could kind of treat part of that recording a bit like sort of ADR sessions that we do for films Like with musicals generally you tend to come from this kind of nasty production sound or a live kind of You know, dirtier, gritty sounding track into these marvellously recorded close proximity sort of uh, songs. So it felt like we needed to work on that and have early conversations on that to try to minimize that when we got later into the mix. So that was my early involvement. And then obviously Andy was our man on the ground. So we kind of kept communicating throughout. And then as, as we got into post-production, that's when I then met Chris and um, obviously went from there.
2: I remember um, there was a day Matt came down to the set, record the um, some crowd, if I remember. Cause we had these 200 extras for a scene that didn't actually make the uh, film in the end. It was for an ending that um, we didn't use. We realised we had all these uh, these supporting artists. Why not come down and record them chanting Rocket Man, and doing a few chants, so uh, Matt came down to do some crowd stuff, which I think really helped as well. Yeah, because
3: the Rocket Man sequence, basically it was like everything was shot mute, so we had to, when he comes out onto the Dodger Stadium and 80,000 people are kind of singing back the chorus, um, we had no audio at all, so we kind of did a lot of these wild tracks on set that Andy's talking about, we also had some crowd sessions um, and then just a little bit of clever work within Pro Tools and what we can do now enabled us to get the scowl um, for that when, when, when he comes out and sings to that crowd.
4: That was shot in the studio and I'm not even sure there were any crowd either. There weren't any people
2: in, in no the not at all.
4: It was green
3: screen. I actually did get in contact with Elton's team when he was touring because during that time of post-production, I think he was finishing off the last couple of things around America. Um, so see if we could go out and record. But I think it was really difficult. I think his show was quite tight. So his team came back and said um, no to that, unfortunately. But um, we got there in the end, I felt.
0: Now that we've talked about the actual song Rocketman within the film "Rocket Man," the song starts underwater and by the time we get to the end of the song he's on stage and as you mentioned on a stage in front of 80,000 people. These transitions were not easy and I'm wondering how you guys tackled that kind of thing.
3: It's interesting because throughout the film some songs kind of play really natural so we start on a bit like um, your song. We start with Taron sort of singing at the piano. And then throughout mm-hmm. that scene, we slowly come across the sort of pre-records that had been done and possibly post-records Andy. But those kind of transitions needed to be fluid as possible because it was sort of more reality at that moment. But for things like Rocket Man, because he is underwater, he's singing underwater, and we kind of come across and he comes out to the stadium. It felt like we were getting more into sort of fantasy world there. So the stuff Giles did was quite quirky as well sounding, and it just sort of helped those kind of moments it was more just going for it you know for those songs um kind of you know all of this sort of reality stuff went out the window it was more just about that song being powerful and then when he comes out into the jet stadium giving that as much emotion from the crowd singing along so yeah it's interesting different songs we kind of use different tactics really
4: oh, of course that one rocket man's a kind of key bit of the film isn't it where he's kind of he's overdosed on pills and and stuff so he's in a sort of slightly out of body state anyway when he's underwater so what and also when he's fished out what the soundtrack of the film sort of reflects that to fantasy but it's also like it's sort of his point of view Alton's point of view and he sort of sees himself as a boy underwater so the whole yeah. like i say the whole thing is kind of is is surreal and therefore there's loads of opportunities with the soundtrack what's great about that you you go from three different worlds it's sort of the end of it is actually kind of realistic stadium, and then then he explodes in a in the air, <laughs> rocket. You know, so it's got, there's everything. Sound-wise, I mean, it's, it's really got so many. I mean, you know, it's written into the script in a way, like the 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 ideas. But you know, it just gives you gives license to do to do more creative stuff. Really,
1: can I ask you about the Taran's vocals in that song? Since we're talking about that particular sequence in the final mix, how did that end up all getting sewn together?
2: Yeah, so Taryn sang, you know, as part of our pre-record sessions. Uh, we worked on that one quite quite early, I think. Basically, we had a schedule in place to make sure we had the tracks ready by the time we shot. And sometimes it was Taron wouldn't be on set. Um, Occasionally I recorded him in his trailer. Um, So then we played that back underwater to him for the first shots in the tank. Um, And he did an amazing, I mean, it's quite remarkable how, how well he did.
1: Do any of you know what that sounded like?
2: I should have put my head down, but I didn't. (laughs) Well, that was another amazing experience, but he sort of lip synced to that um, underwater. Um, and then moving into the ambulance, he also, again, you know, he's put on the stretcher, and then that was all to play back. And when he got onto stage, it was all to play back. So we went back afterwards, and we, uh, Danny and I, spent a lot of time on the sink. And this is when we, we went back to Chris and asked for a few picture slips here and there. Did you re record any of his? Uh, we might have done a little bit um, in Rocketman, but sometimes Taryn said, I really want to re record something. And we did. We preferred the original when it came to company. But when we did the re-records, we put on a, a a clip mic, a lav mic, and put up a shotgun in the booth, as along with um, Giles' choice of mics, which he always had three mics up to see what he thought was the best.
1: Yeah, we saw in the uh, DVD extras there's some good... Uh clips of that process of Taron basically ADRing, I guess, his, his vocals over again with yes. three very nice-looking mics set up.
2: Yeah, well, that, so that's what he It was a U47, a U87, and a, um, and a 414. And he would, if, so if he was climbing up on the piano while he was singing, he would try to make those movements in the booth. And if he was climbing on the piano, he'd try to move his body as if he was climbing up so you get the rustle of his clothes at the same time. Um, and he'd be following it but then danny and i went in um quite um surgically and um used his actual on because every time they, they sang to playbacks we made sure they actually sang out loud because your face makes a different shape when you're actually um, projecting rather than if you're just miming without making any sound plus it gave us the audio from set to be able to sync up to so danny and i spent a long time syncing up audio afterwards, and I think John Hayes on set even took the, um, the, the I think it was like an SM57 or something on set, he even managed to plug into that and record that to an extra track, which we had available, but I don't know if we used
0: So now you have a million different tracks from all of the stuff that Giles Martin, who is the music producer on this, uh, famously the son of George Martin of Beatles fame. So he's recorded his three mics, a million overdubs, I'm sure. Then you've got all the stuff that was recorded on set through the various mics you were just talking about. How did you coordinate what mics you were going to use? When? When did you bring in the mixing team of uh, Mike Presswood-Smith and such?
3: So Mike Presswood-Smith, we got talking to uh, Giles, Martin as well, we set up a meeting like, um, because he actually wasn't involved with some of those early temps. And for some of those uh, early temps that we did on the film, they were quite quick turnaround. And it it was quite noticeable at that point, how we were coming from like onset recordings to these kind of musical numbers. So that was the thing that we were constantly working on. And and then getting Mike talking to Giles, um, they set up the project. So like once Giles had done his kind of music mixing, he did it in a way that it was really flexible for Mike to then be able to jump in um, and do what he needed to do within those mixes.
4: Getting the musical world to meet the film world in terms
3: of the soundtrack was the thing, wasn't it? Sometimes music gets delivered to the stage, you know, vocals are stereo left, right. They've already had reverb put on them. They're treated, you know, compressed. They've had like funny tools put on them to kind of give them a certain quality. Like, Charles did all what he wanted to do, but that stuff was always able to be kind of reined back or uh, pulled back in. Um, maybe maybe taking some of the processing off, so when we're coming from this production to the song, Mike was able to spend a bit of time really making that as fluid as possible, kind of, you know, with EQ, reverbs, compression, and all kinds of different tricks he was using, and the kind of sound effects backing that, that kind of stuff up as well. So although we were going into the musical numbers, we were still trying to keep the sound feeling really live and in those places, so that it didn't feel that all that dropped out into these musical numbers.
1: Yeah, it does change, but you you don't. There's no moment. Some like old fashioned musicals where you can almost hear the switch click.
3: It's like bang, here we go into a musical, and you're like, (coughs) this voice hits you in the face, and you're like, what's going on there? That was what we were trying to avoid. It was like this slowly creep across, where you're kind of thinking, hang on, we still in this scene or. Because I think as humans, we do react to these things. And I think it's us trying to sort of make that as seamless as possible. That was the key for the ins and outs, definitely. The big note from Dexter was the transitions. And it took us a while to get into that. But I think all of these early conversations with Mike in Technique, like Andy says, with, you know, in ADR, we get the people to move. And I think in musicals, they literally stand there and sing. With Taron, you know, he was kind of being really physical during the recording sessions, which is quite unusual. You know, you have to be brave to do that. I think because a lot of people like to keep it really clean, really steady. Because I guess you know, for sort of you know, CD releases and things like that afterwards. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it was all really good. Everyone was on board. Andy was on board to push that stuff. Chris, when we come to the Tempt, he was heavily involved with the conversations with Mike and Giles. It was a really, really kind of team effort across the board, I think, which sort of brought it all together.
4: I mean, the transitions were the big, were the big thing, weren't they? And also, as cause as we were obviously we were doing temp mixes whilst we were still editing, and of course that that helped us make decisions about the other stuff, not just the audio, the quality of how the actual sound of the singing was going in and out of, you know, from sync sound into the song. But it was also like whether should we use score as well in those little areas and we did quite a lot of that, you know, when rather than like the song starting, we actually, you know, had a composer, Matt Margison, who was writing stuff for the film and for instance the first piece in the film, The Bitch is Back, is, you know, the song way before the actual song starts, we've got a little bit of score coming in and that sort of gets you into the world, that sort of heightened world, you know, that sort of slightly fantastical sort of world and and we did that a lot. And it, you know, in, in Rocket Man, like he actually He's wandering around the party and there's kind of music playing and we kind of processed that and made it, you know, as if it's being heard from Elton's point of view and he's drunk and stuff. So you kind of always were thinking about what what other things we could do to help those transitions in and out of the musical pieces.
2: From a, from a technical point of view, um, to, to achieve that on the dub, we got our, our mixes through from Sam O'Kell who was um, doing the mixes with Giles up at Abbey Road Um, He'd also send across his session file, his Pro Tools session file, and we'd ensured that we had an exact copy of his rig in a cutting room at Goldcrest um, for me to be able to work on because if we needed to change a stem or dig a bit out or work on sync, we didn't want to have to send it back to him to reprocess to come back because we were on quite a tight schedule. In addition to that, what we provided in the music track lay on the music system was the vocal... As well as um, Sam's mixed vocal stem, we also gave the vocal chain. So we also imported the vocal track from our mix into the music track lane, just left it there inactive until Mike decided, well, look, I think we need a bit more work on this one. I'll mute mute the mix stem and we'll dig into the original vocal chain, which sometimes was the original vocal from on set with some of the extra bits that we recorded uh, post or pre you know so that really gave mike the the freedom to be able to do that sort of thing
3: and he had to work really hard mike it is a shame he's not involved because he would talk more about how he did a lot of this stuff but um Yeah, he was a huge part of the process to get this working really well.
2: In such a tight time.
0: Mike's been on our podcast before. He's a great guy, and it would have been great to have him, but unfortunately he had to drop out at the last minute. But something I'd like to dig in with you guys with, since we have Chris, a picture editor, which is a a little bit uh, of a luxury for us on this podcast because we're normally only talking to the sound people. Uh, Chris, you mentioned earlier that having Andy in the next room uh, was really useful. I was wondering if you could give us examples of your actual interaction with Andy and Danny during the picture edit.
4: Yeah, during the director's cut and the, and the whole picture edit, the the pieces that we used on on set were really only in almost in demo form. Am I right in saying that, Andy? I mean, yes, absolutely. Some much more developed than others. You know, Rocketman was in a good state and. But some of them were just like a piano accompaniment and thing, you know, very, very simple, stripped back. So what we had to do was as we were making, you know, changing the edit, you know, cutting scenes down, looking at musical, you know, numbers, we had to keep revising the music, not, not just maybe taking a few bars out, which we did here and there, adding some, this and that. But we needed to sort of have some kind of very quick, Kind of help with how maybe if we had an idea if we if we cut a a sequence down and we we needed to treat it maybe differently we wanted maybe the start of the 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 number to be quieter maybe not have any brass on it or something just go with guitar and bass and things like that and we you know that was too much for us in in the edit to to deal with so we would then very you know go and talk to Andy. And then say to him, look, could you just try a little version of this for us that sort of gets us to a different place with it, just with the tracks that you've got? And then we would try that on the the edit as we were working. And then that would then also, I think I'm right in saying, and he's like, uh, Giles would would have got in, got involved with that as well and would help, Giles Martin would then record some more stuff for us and really help to sort of build on those those pieces of music as, as we were going. And... Um, that was really the way it worked in terms of the music department because it was a constant to and fro. So we would have, you know, once we got a new new sort of mix of the music or a sort of idea sketch for the music, we would, like, put it in the edit and then see how it worked. And then maybe if we liked it, we'd give that to Giles and he'd start working on it, getting some musicians in, recording new stuff. And there was never really a moment where we had a definitive... The, the the track, the, the music was definitive, you know, done until really quite late, it, ca- it came together right at the end. In terms of the soundtrack, it was very similar, but not quite as much a to and fro, you know, but essentially the same thing is that we, we needed the film to sound right in the cutting room more so than you would normally actually because of as we said before all the transitions and all of those things had to we had to sort of set the template for it or try to in the in the edit to get the whole thing to work.
1: Is it a matter of having confidence that the cut is going to sound right before you can move on?
4: You know for instance I'm Still Standing, for instance, is the actual track starts very, very, just comes straight in on the, you know, the whole thing starts, you know, drums, guitar, whatever. But our version of it's very different in that it's sung by Taron, sort of a cappella, I think, on set with maybe some piano and um, accompaniment on set. And, we, and we, we had no music with it at all, essentially, when we, when we were cutting. So he sang a cappella and then he bursts through the doors at the end and then it goes into the, the track full, although albeit a re-recorded, rearranged version of it. And of course that that area is where we needed to think about what we were gonna accompany him with. It it wasn't quite right with him just a cappella. So we started to try things, you know, um we asked the composer Matt to put to write some stuff to go under and then we wanted it to start quite gently because it came from a a very sort of like reflective scene where he's in he's in rehab where he sort of meets all his you know his his sort of demons in rehab and So that was where, you know, we needed to experiment in order to get the film to balance. And, you know, essentially, it was not just a question of having the score delivered at the end and the music delivered at the end. It couldn't have ever worked like that.
3: It was really good with the temp mixes, Chris, wasn't it? Because um, I know we, we had maybe four, I think, in the end, but that really kind of set the path, didn't it? Even with you and Dexter sort of giving us guidance all the way through there as to where we were heading. Each stage we went through really kind of helped us sort of hone and get get to where we needed to be getting to.
4: Yeah, definitely. I mean, but, and also because of course when we're working, you know, it's how much you can put, get in there, like musical numbers, like how much, how much reality you want in them from the sound, you know, in terms of um, like you were saying about Rocket Man, you know, the crowd, that's a big scene to, to deal with because you've got music really loud. It's like a live performance at the end there. You've got a massive crowd of like 80,000 people and then, in the scene, actually, Taron runs around the stage. he hasn't even got a microphone, has he and uh, you know he was he was so the whole thing's like not realistic, really is it it's in terms of it but but we had to make it feel feel realistic and and the amount of crowd we had if you had too much of it, it really didn't work it was'cause it still had to be a, a driven in a musical way but but it needed that kind of reality to give it make it exciting didn't it more exciting
2: yeah it was it was a very fine balancer and i think it took a few goes before we got it got it right for sure because i think um when sam mixed it uh, originally the music he he sort of had a very um sort of pa system style vocal when when Taryn, as soon as Taryn came out on the stage um he switched to this sort of pa driven sound which which I think worked when he sits down at the piano, but we eased off on it until he sits down at the piano and he's in front of this microphone on a stand. It took a while before all of those different constituent parts we managed to knit them together right. It was either there was too much crowd or there was too much of the music or too much of the the ambience effect on it to begin with. So it took a bit of sculpting. And Dexter had his own ideas as well, so he, he contributed to it as well.
4: Now on some of them, I mean, like we, we literally... Did a whole turnaround, like on the "I Want Love." It started off as piano and I, as a demo, and we really liked that. Then we wrote an orchestra. We 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 put orchestra on the orchestra on there, and um, which is sort of a lush, not sort of 19, I don't know, 40s sort of Gershwin sort of sort of thing. We realised though we'd lost the piano element because it's Elton John he plays the piano, so we had to put the piano back in. And then, I, you know, I constantly I was always wondering, oh, well, should we just have should we just go with the piano as it was originally and all this sort of stuff? And, and, and really not until you actually get it all together on the soundstage and you get all the elements and until you actually mix it right. You don't really know. You don't 100 percent know how it's working in the film.
0: Yeah, I'm pretty sure a good example of that would be when they play Crocodile Rock in the film in the context of this plot Elton has come to the United States for the first time. he's going to be playing a bar in LA and it goes from kind of abstract as he's going on the stage to a very realistic rock show to a really amazing fantasy moment and then back into the rock show. Uh, what was the name of the bar that it took place in the famous LA bar? The troubadour.
3: He comes out um, with this nervous energy and we kind of go a little bit underwater. He walks on stage and then all of the crowd kind of settle and they're silent and then he starts singing. Um, which I think he sung live and then you re-recorded again Andy didn't you? He
2: did that's right Yeah, he sang it live on set but wasn't um, happy with all of it so he he re-sang it using our technique with a few extra mics I think
3: and then when we sort of mixed that Mike had sort of put this PA on it and kind of made it feel like he was singing live in the room but there was still something not quite right it just wasn't landing in the lips you know like when you kind of believe it so we went back to the production and in between, like on the live recording that Andy was involved with, there was kind of these little breaths, you know, like in when on a live when you blow across a microphone.
1: Mm, that's such a nice moment, yeah.
3: You sort of cut all of those in, in in between the singing, and it just sort of landed it in there. Then it would like just give it that realness sort of thing. So. There was quite a lot of tricks used throughout on each song. One
2: line that didn't quite land with the sink as well, so we went back and cut the original um, set. Uh, I think it was half a line, maybe it's just a word, but we cut back to that for that word because it was quite a close-up, and the sink just wasn't working for us, so we um, we went back to that, and I think it's all the better for it. Um. Was young. Me and Susie had so much fun holding hands and skill
0: stones. Had a good girl, a Chevy, and a place of my heart.
4: I was never happy with how it worked. It was certainly, not the beginning of that song—a classic example of like you had to get mix it and get all like you were saying all those elements, those subtle elements right—and then and then it actually finally worked when we we're on the soundstage, you know. And and also the reality of it, like you're when we're working in the edit, you're sort of okay with the sync as it is like you're saying andy but when you actually get on the stage you realize that oh you've you've replaced a few bits of bits of singing here and there dialogue here and there and you need to slip things around you need to do all that real fine work to actually get it to work but particularly that sequence because it's a live performance so it really had to feel that you were there and the audiences are really critical
3: and i think as soon as something like that's slightly amiss i think even if it sounds okay and it feels real i think as soon as that stuff's a little bit off i think it's gone all of a sudden so it's really yeah. crucial yeah that was a big part of the mix wasn't it chris trying to get those moments oh, yeah, right
4: completely i mean you know and honestly we 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 had to set that up quite early as well Is the idea of that 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 we were going to be in that kind of fantasy world visually but also sound you know in, in on the soundtrack and once people are comfortable with that that you're going to go different places and you're going to you know, they'll they'll take, they'll go with any anything almost, then creatively, I mean, you know. And that that was the thing, is like, we, yeah, we had some sequences that were just dead realistic, and some were just like totally fantastical situations, you know. Saturday night's all right for fighting, that, that kind of one
3: shot where he starts as a little boy, which we're live in the pub, and then it kind of goes fantasies, and they're like running around a fairground, everyone's dancing, big set pieces. And then he kind of comes back up into the pub and then before you know it, you're actually in the pub again and he's singing it live and everything sounds live as if he's singing it in the pub. So those kind of journeys. Yeah, it was great. It took ages to get there for Mike and Matt, the sound designer as well. Um, But yeah, no, it was good fun.
1: Yeah, it strikes me as having been a lot of fun just because you can bend that line around the fantasy and reality just opens things up so much, it would seem.
4: Yeah, completely. And also you can all make a difference, like, for instance, with the music, because it's, it's, it really, really is a team game because it's like Dexter sort of allowed people to have ideas and roll them in, you know, both on with music and all, all sorts of areas, and, and that's also because of the kind of film it is. Really,
0: I think is it, it needs to be packed with ideas, sound wise and picture wise. I love that the way the picture starts. Most people going into this picture are going to be uh, mentally comparing it to Bohemian Rhapsody because they they came out s- similar time frames about similar era singers. The way this film opens with uh, the ultra overblown hallway, Elton entering with the crazy outfit, the huge stomps of his feet as he goes down. Then the door opens and silence for about 20 seconds as he walks across the room. Like After that, everyone's just going, okay, this isn't Bohemian Rhapsody. We're into something wholly new and exciting here. Take us on this ride. Let's do it. It was a fantastic way to start the film.
4: Yeah, and that was from Dexter and it got bigger and bigger and bigger that opening like the the music the whole thing originally i thought oh it was going to be too much but actually no that you really needed to build because also it's funny you know when he opens the door and there's nothing there because you think he's going to come out on stage or something and he's not he's in a, he's in a very you know humble room full of uh, dr- other drug addicts
2: so that that was the point you know and the dynamics of the sound were really really key to that and then, as you say, you have this massive score moment, which is the tune of Goodbye, Ilybic Road, um, which builds that massive crescendo as he opens the doors. And then it's just still, see so you, cr- you really crash into it, which I think is great and really helps.
1: Tim and I were watching that scene and he's like, what is this song? And I'm like, it's so familiar, but the, the arrangement and the way, yeah, the way it was arranged was so different and cinematic to start with. And then it just kind of, and then I, you're like, oh, it's Yellow Brick Road, of course, yeah.
2: It gets a few uses it. I think we decided, like, we, um, Matt uh, mocked it up with the sort of the Choir Boy sound, and that sort of took, took on a life of a sort of a motive for... Elton's um addictions, I think.
4: Yeah. We attached themes to every you know, from El it be- became necessary to take them from Elton's tracks. So there were themes. The themes
2: Goodbye Yellow Brick Road became a theme and then your song. Yeah, your song became the sort of the Bernie and elton love a brotherly love between them and that that also helped was also unified the
4: soundtrack you used it like score but also you were never really out of the this sort of musical world the world of the kind of musical movie i mean rather than all that or that genre and that was the, to keep those balls in the air basically we didn't have it all the way through the film but we needed to keep it there the, those themes to sort of you
2: know, not just tell the story, but to remind you what world you're in. That's right. Matt, Matthew Morgerson started off by writing some new themes for it, but then I think we reached a point where we suddenly realised, well, hang on, we've got all these amazing tunes which we're allowed to use because we've licensed them for the song part, so we can use any of the tunes we've already licensed we can use um, as part of the deal. Um, why don't we try some of these tunes? That's that's how we started off with the um, Goodbye, Elbrick Road, and... Um, When he did his um, work on the arrangement of I Want Love, we started to use the stems that he produced for that to temp other parts of the movie and use that sort of I want love yearning, um, uh, you know, this just yearning for love, which is basically until, um, you know, that's the sort of message of it. He was always just looking for love.
0: Well, it was really great to see a picture where all of the departments were clearly working together and working as a team, as you guys mentioned earlier. This this movie couldn't have been made without uh, the interaction of everybody. So it it was really inspiring to see, and I want to thank you all for taking the time to talk to us, explaining how you guys all interacted, because it's really inspiring. Thank Thank you. you, Thank
2: you very much for pleasure. inviting us.
0: Thumbbidders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado and Teresa Morrow music is by mark Strait. send your emails to info at follow us on twitter via at the tonebenders and join tonebenders podcast on facebook support this podcast you can use our links when you shop with amazon or bnh or leave us a tip just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button thanks for listening